0: Hey, everyone. Before we get started here, a few announcements. Two are in relationship to our guest today on the podcast, Denise Hearn. So number one, we are going to be discussing on the podcast Denise's new blog, Embodied Economics. It's highly worth your time to read. I can't imagine anybody who comes to this, listen to this podcast, wouldn't find this newsletter fascinating. I love it. So go sign up right away. You can go visit embodied-economics.ghost.io or visit the show notes where I've provided a link. Also, Denise is working on a campaign called Access to Markets, and she's currently looking to speak with entrepreneurs who are negatively affected by dominant companies in their industry who are willing to speak publicly to the press and lawmakers about their experiences. Denise has done a lot of work on anti-competitiveness. So if that is sounds like you, please uh, reach out to Denise. You can visit her website or catch her through LinkedIn. I've provided links to both of those in the show notes as well. And third, uh, Je- Jen Edmerson, who was our guest from episode 24 and who is one of the sort of founding fathers of Impact Investing, has been moved over to Tideman Advisors. And I think he's been there for maybe a year or so, but he has posted a job recently working directly with him at tidiman called the vice president for impact and i believe it's a it's a u.s based rule i think there's a choice of a couple locations you could work from but i highly recommend uh checking it out if that sounds like it might be up your alley jed's i think really highly of him and i think that'd be a fascinating job i'm jealous i can't consider it myself with that let's get on to the podcast. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. I'm your host, David O'Leary. I'm a reformed free market capitalist who now spends his time trying to harness the power of the markets for good. And I started this podcast for anyone who wants to join me as I explore the world at the intersection of purpose and profit. For all the good that impact investors claim to be doing, it behooves us to consider what harm we might be causing in the process, and whether, ultimately, we're doing more damage than good. After all, impact investing is still investing. It exists within the current framework of free market capitalism, and as the deep fractures in that system have been laid bare, it only makes sense to ask ourselves what systemic changes are required to bring about true and lasting equality. And while many people are beginning to discuss how capitalism can be improved, or even wonder whether it's salvageable to begin with, today's guest is exploring even more fundamental questions about our understanding of economics. After all, it shouldn't surprise us when our financial systems fail us if those systems are built off of a flawed understanding of economics. Enter today's guest, thought leader, advisor, and author Denise Hearn. Denise joins us today to discuss her new blog, Embodied Economics which is, in her own words, an exploration of economic paradigms and financial systems through bo- nature, body, power, care, and interconnectedness. In Denise's first blog post, she asks us to consider what is life, what is economic value? On the surface, it seems like easy questions to answer. Yet, the better we understand these terms, the more difficult they become to define. Denise argues that economics for too long is operated in the theoretical realm, divorcing itself from the realities of life. If economics is to serve us better, it must be understood in the following context, once again in Denise's words, to be human is to be a living, embodied person, embedded in nature, and a complex tapestry of relationships. In this episode, Denise and I discuss the intellectual, philosophical, and spiritual inquiry that is embodied economics, We discuss how we can better understand economic value, what she calls the Forgotten Five of Economics, a simple way to grow global GDP by 10% overnight, and her book, The Myth of Capitalism, and her work on anti-competitiveness. And be sure to stay tuned to the very end, when Denise and I discuss her thoughts on how she and each of us can affect meaningful change. With that, let's get on to the podcast. Denise, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, David. So excited so to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I don't remember when we uh, first met. I mean, we were just chatting about this before the call, but I think it was a few years ago. You were on your way to Toronto for, I think it was a conference, um, maybe having to do gender equality. But anyway, we I, got, I had the pleasure of meeting you there. And then I've just like repeatedly come across you, your work through a bunch of other folks that I you know, really highly admire and respect. And so there's no surprise, but folks like Joy Anderson at Criterion Institute and Delilah Rothenberg at the Pre Distribution Initiative who have both been on the podcast before. So um, this is really fun for me and I've had a chance to hear you talk a bunch of times. So I'd love for you to just introduce yourself to the audience and who are you? What are you working on? What are you passionate about? What problems are you trying to solve?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. And I do feel incredibly fortunate. I've had a very nonlinear experience career path my whole life but in the past few years probably especially but I one of the, the anchoring sort of motivations for me is to get to work with people I deeply respect and admire and orient my my work around that and so mm. I I did have a pinch me moment at the, at the end of I think it was at the end of last year and I realized oh, I, I've started my own business and all of the projects I was working on were with very strong intelligent and kind women who I deeply respected for the most part. Of course, I do work with men as well, but that that felt like just a huge success for me. So that that felt really exciting. But in terms of who I am, I recently decided I wanted to start introducing myself in relation to, to bi- uh, biospheres <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> because I grew up moving around quite a bit when I was younger, and I have always had difficulty relating to a national identity because i'm canadian but i've lived in asia and us okay and i've had difficulty knowing where i call home Mm. but when i am in the forests of the pacific northwest i now live in seattle which is the unceded land of the Duwamish people and when i'm in the rocky mountains is when i feel the most alive to myself and to the world and Mm. where i feel a deep more eternal sense of home and so that's how I want to start, you know, claiming and also not necessarily a heritage, obviously, but but claiming a sense of home and then being responsible to what that means. And so I'm not entirely sure what that means yet, but
0: that's very it's, it's interesting. I don't know if this is touching on for me. Reading Winners Take All one talks about in that this idea of the global citizen and I'm a citizen of everywhere. And but if you're a citizen of everywhere, you're also belong to nowhere, and you don't have mm-hmm. a community or a place that you call home and anything that you work to protect and build and develop and i i, I wonder if part of is, is that kind of are there aspects of that that you feel in terms of being a given that you've moved around and you've been sort of not feeling like you've got a knowing what where home is that does that sort of issue come to play for you feeling like i need to i want to feel like i belong somewhere and that this is home for me and is that part of what's at play for you there
1: Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that we all seek a sense of belonging in different ways and we go about finding and constructing those ties in different ways. And I do think that there, it's obviously been a huge privilege as a kind con- of a Canadian passport, I'm obviously a white woman who has had the freedom and the resources of mobility to be able to have all these different experiences with all these places. Which is not true of a majority of the world. And I do think that there is obviously a major gift in that, but it also <coughs> is a privilege that I think to your point sometimes can feel like then you, you, you know, can have the benefits in some ways without the responsibilities of feeling tied to a certain place or a certain community. And and yeah, so I think that is something I'm interested in trying to cultivate now. At this age, it's hard still because even though my husband and I moved to Seattle four years ago and we really love it here for a number of reasons, we're nowhere near any of our family members and my family is still very spread apart. My parents are in Calgary. My sister used to live in Japan. Now she's in Houston. Now my brother lives in Eastern Canada. So even And then my husband's family lives in Vermont. So even if we um, wanted to prioritize family, there's still four reference points we would need to coordinate yeah. <laughs> against to yeah. figure out what that means. And uh, yeah, I think that's just obviously, I think for a lot of people, that's, that's modern life. But I think there are so many questions here about identity, layers of identity, who we are and how we how we describe ourselves. That's why I'm always terrible at answering this question. And I'm sorry, David, for <laughs> giving a very meandering answer to this. But I just, I, I realized a few years ago too, that of course, there's very, I think, central pillars to who we are. That in some ways are unchanging and ideally those are mostly values or core values but that our identity is constantly sort of shape-shifting and evolving and growing and being added to and hopefully cutting off things that are, yeah that need to be cut away and so i i find it very hard to give a static answer to who are you question?
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. I struggle with it as well in some of the same ways. Mine have a lot more to do with the where I'm sending my time and energy and problems I'm tackling. I don't have, oh, I'm a teacher or I'm a firefighter or a single word job mm-hmm. description. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. difficult. And my wife has very similar geographic issues at play as you do growing up all over sub-Saharan Africa, moving from one Problem to the next is her parents were in humanitarian work for generations. Her family did that, and her family's spread out all over the world. So she she very much wrestles with this idea of not feeling at, you know, at home anywhere and knowing mm-hmm. where home is. And, and then even just being around people that you love is difficult. You're never with them all at once because they're all... In different parts of the world and yeah, yeah. it's a very honest answer uh, that you gave i appreciate it and, and vulnerable right it's just getting to the, the 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 heart of struggle not having all the answers and struggling with or wrestling with anyway
1: yeah. yeah identity
0: and home and these are very fundamental issues good questions
1: thank you yeah i think one of the things that i do feel confident saying is that um i feel most present when i'm just engaged in the act of noticing so whether it's whether i'm just on a walk and i'm taking in the sort of beauty of the surroundings even in minute detail like looking at a leaf and being amazed at a leaf or whatever the case may be or or also just in my current work where i do try to spend a lot of time noticing and seeing how markets function how our economic system function what paradigms underpin it and noticing and I think I'm trying to get better (laughs) in some ways at having and in some ways not immediately judging what I notice but leaving space to see what is there to deepen my own understanding while also then being able to speak to some of the things that that do emerge that feel like they need to be they need to be talked about, particularly in the impact space where I think there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of talk about changing the world. But sometimes when you peel back layers and you just keep asking questions and try to get under what's really happening, you can find a lot that's there that sometimes is uninterrogated. And that's, so that's where I really like to spend my time noticing and asking questions.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. So that, then that's why you're here today, because I think I want to interrogate some of these issues and questions around impact investing and, and, and impact just writ large. I'd love to just unpack a little bit more about how you're spending your time and some of the things you're working on right now. If I can, for me, I love your description on your website. You're on the cover there, it says, My highest commitment is to help humans and our ecological home flourish together. You'll find me writing, advising, catalyzing projects singing and learning so the first thing i was going to ask is what do you like to sing and can we hear something from you <laughs> no you oh, don't no. want to give us a, a show no. <laughs> <laughs> i'm teasing, I'm teasing. Um,
1: yeah 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 it's funny because at one point in my life i wanted to be a singer songwriter and i oh really uh, actually re- yeah i actually released a cd thankfully the eminence is now wiped <laughs> off of the internet. Oh. it's no longer on oh, spotify man. but once for many years and yeah, so that was a big part of my life. I also grew up um in I grew up in going to church and I led I led music like even up until my twenties. I was like a worship leader and Oh wow. So it was a big part of my life. And unfortunately when you get older there are not as many outlets for that sort of thing so now i go to karaoke occasionally and
0: oh amazing <laughs> so oh that's
1: probably about it but i feel um, like
0: i need to spend I, a fair bit of time trying to track down this music
1: that no please some- don't please don't <laughs> okay. very sad oh. angsty teenage songs mostly but uh, yeah but i actually would love to i would love to in 2022 see if there's anyone in seattle that wants to start a band just for fun or so here's a great call to
0: action right if anybody's listening yeah Yeah, exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just i would like a guitarist and a percussionist as a starter oh that's amazing
0: oh yeah so you know how amazing i would feel if you met two musicians through this spot from this podcast <laughs> that would be just my crowning achievement <laughs> that
1: would be great if you're out there let me know
0: yeah yeah but talk a little bit about the other in, in all seriousness some of the other aspects so the writing you've launched a, a new newsletter called embodied economics which you will talk a little bit about but the advising well and you've also a co-author of the myth of capitalism which i'm really embarrassed to admit i haven't read yet it's been on my audible
1: no please playlist no i am
0: excited to read it too it's just I've been listening I've been no, on a podcast no run. To read. And I am I very to excited to was... read it. Normally I wouldn't I'm, by always... now. I'm deeply embarrassed. Oh. <laughs>
1: no, please embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I'm just always astounded when anyone takes precious time to read something that I participated in creating. And my biggest fear about wanting to do the next book is having all my friends feel guilty that they you know, potentially read the book because right it's It is like a huge imposition on people's time to expect them to especially read an entire book these days. So this that's is surreal.
0: right up my alley. I love that I've read the descriptions I've, I've I know people have recommended it. It's anyway, so you do a lot of writing. I'll let you just unpack how you spend your time now,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, exactly. So yeah, the book that came out in at the end of two thousand and eighteen, I was co-author on it with Jonathan Tipper and it really was his brainchild for the most part. And I, I learned a lot through the process. And it focused on the, we named it the myth of capitalism because we were trying to make the point that if if you believe that capitalism fundamentally involves competitive markets, then what we have, particularly in the U.S. and Canada and increasingly all over the world today is not capitalism. It's it's industry concentration and monopolies and oligopolies, And that was where I first kicked off learning about competition policy and antitrust. And so I'm still involved in that work today. <clears throat> I work half-time with the American Economic Liberties Project, which is a D.C.-based organization, Washington, D.C., that, that is an anti-monopoly policy advocacy group. And so they're doing a lot of work on raising up the issues around <coughs> corporate power, both for, for workers and consumers. And also we've just recently launched a new initiative called the Access to Market Gifts initiative, which is focused on the barriers that small and medium-sized and even large businesses face trying to build uh, a growing business while dealing with all of the kind of anti-competitive and unfair and sometimes even abusive tactics that dominant incumbents will employ against competitors or even suppliers and vendors. And so we've heard from we just to say one more thing about that is we talk to entrepreneurs and business owners from so many different distinct industries. It's really fascinating because we'll speak to, you know, musicians and we'll speak to pharmacists, independent pharmacists or farmers or software engineers who are starting a tech company in Silicon Valley. And you get them all in the room together. And it's so interesting because they may be divided politically, they may be divided culturally. Or by any other factor, they may be like there may be a huge variety of factors where they're diverse as well. But they all converge and say, "Wow, I never would have imagined that I'd have this much in common with a farmer in Illinois who's facing you know these anti-competitive tactics from the big four meat packers, as an example." So that's been really interesting. And so we work to elevate these issues to lawmakers and policymakers and key key decision makers at the FTC or at the White House who are trying to tackle corporate power. And there is a great sort of political movement happening right now where there's a lot of movement in in the appointments that Biden has made and changing based and changing of the old guard around uh, around a lot of these issues and how antitrust has been interpreted. So I think there's a lot of hope and I, I'm excited about that. And so that's, I still keep my foot um, in that world to... Deal with, deal with corporate power in, a, in that sort of more practical way using policy remedies. But I also feel like as I began to learn more about systems thinking and read Danella Meadows' work and others, just learning about how we won't solve, you know, the problem of corporate concentration without solving deeper system incentive problems. And a lot of those happen because of the financial system and thinks that incentivizes. And then if you peel back another layer, you realize that there's all these sort of basic economic tenets that we take for granted that neoclassical economics has really imbued throughout. If you go take an Econ 101 course, you're going to learn all these things like rational choice theory and, and all of these things which actually give us a picture of the world that is really, in my estimation, false and incomplete. And... Those ideas, we created them, and so we can create new ideas. And so that's where my Embodied Economics newsletter is trying to explore getting underneath the fundamental paradigms that drive the kind of system goals and incentives that we have today and how we might think differently about about this.
0: Yeah, I've talked a lot about the unlearning I've had to do due to the what I, you know, this is deliberately... <laughs> saying it in a maybe an inflammatory way, but like the brainwashing you receive as you go through economics and finance studies around these fundamental what you believe are these sort of fundamental truths about the world. Which once you stop for a minute and critically question, wait a minute, where what is it ever written that this is the case, and how did we come to believe that? And so I love that you're peeling back, and as you say, like the analogy gave to you know, stopping noticing and maybe not judging. When you, before you, as you observe things and taking time to actually critically think about the world around us and question some of these, you know, maybe these assumptions that we all hold to be tr- universal truths when maybe they aren't. I love that you're unpacking that and raising these issues. We're going to dive into more on the embodied economics. Can you just talk a little bit about the name?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I don't know. It just, for some reason, it just occurred to me one day that it would be interesting to put those two words together. Mm. And I just put it out on Twitter. I just tweeted, embodied economics.
0: And what happened? <laughs> and,
1: I, and then two of my dear friends and collaborators in the UK, one, one of whom is named Katrine Marcel and has written a fantastic book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner. And yeah, she, you- she's a forerunner in terms of thinking about the economic paradigms that shape systems, system, particularly as they relate to gender. And she has a new book out as well about how gender norms have shaped innovation, for better or for worse. And then, so she said, yes, you know, yes, whatever this is, let's do it. And then my other friend, Michelle Meager, who's also written a book on competition policy called Competition is Killing Us, said the same thing. And so we all started getting on the phone and saying... What would this mean? What do we mean by this? And it was through conversations with them that we came up with this idea that economics has these forgotten five elements, and they tend to be viewed as soft, even though they are the most foundational things to human experience. Those five that we identified were the body, nature, care, power, and interconnection. And as we began to unpack this idea, I think what we discovered was actually asserting that we have a body and that the body is central to our economic systems is actually, strangely, even though it sounds like a very simplistic thing to say, is very, in some ways, revolutionary in economic thinking. And, you know, what we mean by that is that if you take sort of standard economics, rational choice theory, there is this sort of disembodied, mind rational mind that is making decisions about we have this idea in our mind that two essentially white men get together they want to barter and they make these very rational decisions about how they want to do that and then they go off and they've each mach- maximize their self-interest and any particularly non-white man probably at least in our context in this time recognizes the fundamental flaw in that approach which is there's no such thing as a free market, because the body that you're born into, the place of origin, the the country that is unchosen for you, the familial situation, the socioeconomic situation, all of these things, the sex, the biological sex, the ability, the disability, all of these things have a huge impact on your ability to access what what we free markets and the ability to participate in those markets. Um, and so the body that you have, the, the diversity of bodies should be a boon and a strength to the human project, but it's often used as a way to divide and to exploit. And the economy is nothing more than billions of bodies that have come together to do all these various things together. And even though we our economy we think is moving into all of these directions where we're shifting to intangible value or where we think that software is eating the world and these kinds of concepts, what you realize at the end of the day is still how reliant we are on actual humans, of course, for this whole thing to function. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is see how the supply chain is suffering right now because we're not paying truckers adequately and all the trucks are backed up and all of these different supply constraints, things that are happening that are a result of the fact that we haven't considered how we might orient an economy around the shared needs of the body Mm -hmm. and the fact that bodies are born, they're vulnerable, they need care. (laughs) We've just completely ignored care Mm -hmm. in the economy, that bodies age, they get injured, that they need care at that stage. That they need rest, that they seek pleasure. like All of these things are things that my next post I'm writing right now is called, The Body is Not an Economic Apology, which is based on a book called The Body is Not an Apology by Sandra Renee Taylor. And we have this idea that the body is meant to serve the economy Mm -hmm. and that if we're tired or we're unproductive, that this is an apology Mm -hmm. to the economic system of productivity. Mm -hmm. And Bodies should never be an apology to an economic system. An economic system should be apologizing to to our bodies. And I don't know. So I think I'm still exploring what this means, to be honest, but it feels like there's something deeply important here. And so that's the aim with this embodied economics newsletter and future vision. Who knows, holding it lightly, but I would love to turn it into a bigger project at some point. But that's the inquiry and the starting place of how we want to orient the conversation differently.
0: Is this newsletter for you, an outlet for you to be able to process what you're learning and experiencing and understanding in real time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Selfishly, for sure. Yeah. And I think that once I can have a lot of ideas in my mind, and then once I have to mm-hmm. be forced into the discipline of putting them on paper, things crystallize a lot more. And so that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to do. And also, yeah, so I, I just want to bring people along on the journey that I've on in terms of the questions i'm asking the people i'm talking to and and I, I hopefully that's useful to people obviously i do i do spend a lot of time hoping and and trying to you know do it in such a way that i believe it will be useful to people but i think that it's an experiment so i definitely welcome feedback i,
0: I think you have it precisely backwards it's not selfish i think it? it's very generous the time and effort that i understand that going through the process of writing helps you to maybe process your own you know thoughts and all that but going to the Extra str- steps of publishing it in a manner that you probably feel good about, that you aren't embarrassed to share. These aren't your rough crib notes that you're writing for yourself. You're writing it in mm-hmm. a manner that's consumable for others to join that journey. And I think that's a very generous because I, have pre- I have a you know firsthand experience with it. How much time and effort and energy that takes to be able to, to to do that. So I, whatever it's worth, I really appreciate that that you're doing it and making it available. I'm I'm excited to be able to go on that that journey with you. So thank you.
1: Oh, Um, thank you. Same with podcasting too. It takes a lot of time. People don't, I think, appreciate that. But
0: yeah, sure it it does. But anyway, yeah, I wasn't uh, turning it into a a compliment for me, but uh, thank you. So I'd love to maybe just unpack a little bit on the other sides of where you're working. So you talked about the writing you're doing. I know that you work with the pre-distribution initiative. I know you do work with Joy Anderson at Criterion Institute. So maybe just unpack, and there, there's probably other you know projects that you work on that I'm you know not even aware that you're working on. But It's maybe really share horrible. A bit
1: about that. I should focus more, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I nope. I did some consulting work. I've done a number of different projects over the last two years that are basically consulting projects with different organizations. That some have just come around, others I've perhaps thought out a bit more. Um, one one thing that I did about two years ago was help launch something called the First Principles Forum, which was helping newly wealthy tech folks in the San Francisco Bay Area who had a liquidity event so they were early company founders or employees uh, of tech companies that then ipo or got acquired and wanted to think about impact investing or and philanthropy and how they might steward the assets that they have. And So that was really interesting. I learned a lot from that experience and now Stanford Center on Philanthropy is is in charge of that group and that conference. And then I I also did some work with Shio based in Canada there at Toronto, who are I love Vicky and I helped them with their sort of theory of change. And I also helped them write their what they're calling their 10 values and practices. So 10 essays that describe the kind of ethos of Shio which I think is a really incredible organization that i have still involved with as an activator. And then I did just a short project with the Criterion Institute really was an excuse to just spend more time with Joy, if I'm being honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, which was great. And that's exactly what I was hoping for. So that was wonderful. I hope she got something out of it as well. (laughs) And, and then I also helped Tiedemann Advisors last year, which is a a large um, investment firm actually work on their racial equity theory of change, which I very concerned at first when they brought that project to me as a white person. And Mm -hmm. I spoke to a couple of friends of mine who are, who I deeply respect, who are women of color, Tracy Craig, runs a 22 fund, and another friend of mine, Sandia Nakasi, who actually co-founded an organization in Seattle with my husband. And they were actually, we'd rather you be the go-between because Mm -hmm. sometimes it is a little bit difficult to work in these all-white spaces and you can have a role to play here. And so I brought both of um, them on as well. And so the three of us together did the project and that was really great as well. Learned a lot about just thinking through how due diligence processes can create barriers to entry for new fund managers of color. Or we tried to also talk about this idea of the win-win, the dominant win-win narrative, impact narrative, especially, and how that might be useful in some cases. So if you're thinking about investing in ventures or managers who, who traditionally have had difficulty accessing capital, I think it's entirely appropriate to make the economic case to say, like, we have, of course, every reason to believe that these that these managers will be successful, if not more successful than some of the historical funds that we've chosen, and so that makes a lot of sense to to, to go that approach. In other in other sectors and industries, it may make much less sense. As an example, in if you're looking at credit and, and affordable credit, should impact investors be earning returns from loans when? to communities who have already been extracted from for centuries Mm -hmm. and what does it look like to question our assumptions about risk and return and what it means to be rewarded based on um, someone else's financial situation and I think that there's no easy answers to these questions but I think that the more that institutions can I think try to take nuance, try to advocate for for nuance in in how they talk about these things with clients especially i think is really important and the investment advisors play a huge role in setting the tone for the industry with their clients and if they're not willing to acknowledge some of the harms that the investment industry itself has had in perpetuating the dynamics that we now say that we want to undo I think there's a disingenu- in disingenuousness there. And yeah, so anyway, learn to turn from that. And then, sorry, this is like an incredibly long answer, no, but I'll great. just finish by saying that I also now work with Delilah. I'm the board chair of pre- pre-distribution initiatives. So do spend a lot of time with Delilah and the team on their work. And what they do is try to work with institutional investors to think about how they can deconcentrate their capital flows and think really about a lot of these systemic issues about how, finance and even ESG sometimes. The incentives can be misaligned where even ESG funds are the majority tech monopolies who are tax avoiding and don't actually employ a lot of people. And yet they're the top holdings in all the ESG funds. And what do we think about that? What if a lot of a lot of investment structures like over leveraging have these knockoff effects that are deeply problematic for markets. So how do you get investors as well, asset owners and asset allocators in particular to think more critically about the role that not only companies play, in exacerbating inequality or climate risk, but how investment structures themselves also perpetuate these risks and these dynamics. So learn a ton from Delilah every day, working with her. And yeah, and then I just float around and <laughs> talk to interesting people like you. And I, it's, it doesn't, you know, pay probably as well as most other things but it's deeply intellectually satisfying for me and and like I said I get to choose who I work with so that feels very special.
0: That's amazing. Thank you for that. That that rundown because you touched on a lot of some, you know, pretty meaty topics that I think probably a lot of people haven't Done much deep exploration of. Hopefully, we'll circle, we're gonna circle back on some of those issues. But I'd love to just switch gears here a little bit, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and your origin story, if you will. Like, how did you get to where you are now? So you're from Canada originally. I, whereabouts? I don't even know where you're from in Canada.
1: Oh yeah, I'm from. So I was born in Toronto, and okay. then I moved. But I moved away when I was six, and I didn't come back to Canada until my junior year of high school, grade eleven. Um,
0: where would you move away to? It.
1: Went to Houston and then Singapore and then back to Texas in Dallas, outside yeah. Dallas and then into Dallas and then back to Toronto. And then I did my undergrad at Baylor and uh, back to Texas. I at that point. I was feeling That's more of an home. affinity with Texas than I was as a Canadian. And then, And then my parents moved to Calgary while I was at college. And so I came back there and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I was certain I didn't want to live in Calgary. And then I lived there for six years, which was basically the longest place I've lived anywhere. Oh, wow. As an adult. Yeah. And, but it was wonderful. I found that with the, the Rocky Mountains and I had a great community there and then went off. And so most of my career started, I was doing nonprofit work. And as I mentioned before, I was deeply, I was a very deeply spiritual child. And at one point, I even thought I was going to go to seminary. Oh, wow. And that was, that, was a path that I considered and instead I went to business school, (laughs) 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 which was as unexpected to me as it was to anyone else. But I had some great mentors in particular who encouraged me to go get a master's degree. And I was considering nonprofit management and said, no, you should just go get a business degree. Don't limit yourself. And you can always come back to the nonprofit sector if you'd like later. And so I did that. I went out to Oxford, met my husband there in the program. And then I ended up working in London. This is also a funny story that I don't normally tell people, but I met Jonathan Tepper, who became my later co-author, because I became friends with this priest at a coffee shop in Oxford. <laughs> and he was just the most wonderful man. and We would always chat along. And when I was moving to London after the MBA program, he said, or um, I asked him, is there anyone in London that I should meet? he said, actually, there is. There's this... Fascinating man who has started, I don't know, it's something to do with investments and economics. And I don't really understand it, but he's brilliant and you should meet him. And so he introduced me to Jonathan. And then Jonathan and I became friends. And a few months into me living uh, in London, he said, Oh, why don't you come and work for us for variant perception? And he had started uh, essentially a macroeconomic research firm that sold to hedge funds and family offices and institutional investors. And that was like the antithesis of anything. I thought I would ever do, but I thought I would learn a lot. And I stayed there for three years, flew around the world, meeting the world's past investors, learning about financial systems in a deeper way than I ever had before. And then towards the end of our time there, we co-authored the book together. And then I quit the day job and started my own firm three years
0: ago. Wow. That's fascinating. You were in business development. Is that right for perception? Is that
1: yeah, I was, okay. yeah, I was, but it was funny because it was a company that had started, it was, I don't know, maybe six or seven years old by the time I got there, but it still largely functioned like a startup. So yeah. I was, at my thumb in a lot of
0: pies. So I was, yeah.
1: I helped them, yeah. Just Description organize.
0: meanders across all sorts of yeah. boundaries, yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly, I forced everyone on a company offsite to do strategy for the first time. And like that, so it was, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So it was great. And yeah, I learned a ton from them and really respect Jonathan and a couple other individuals there in particular. So that was great. But I had also, I skipped over I before I went to Oxford. I worked one year for the social impact bond startup in Canada that was trying to get social impact bonds going and trying to launch Canada's first SIF. And that was also really interesting. And it's funny because at the time I was uncomfortable with them for a different reason that I couldn't quite articulate. But now I feel somewhat justified in mm. realizing that I didn't have the language for it at the time, but I, I think like the power dynamics inherent in that structure were a little bit off for various reasons, even though they were hailed as very innovative at the time. And so really after the book, the book centered this idea of concentrated power and wealth being one of the key problems of financial systems and markets the world today. And so I would say that the last few years, all the various projects that I've worked on have the common thread of trying to understand what it might look like to deconcentrate power and and build economic systems in a way that are more power with versus domination systems of power over. Hmm. And, and, and so I think that's still a central inquiry for me is how we can do that and trying to find the threads and the projects that feel like they're really doing something interesting on that question, because it feels like a central question over time to me anyways.
0: Yeah. For me too. I, I feel like as I, I spend so much time and obviously this podcast on impact investing and I, I don't know, I'm still you know processing and understanding the world around me and trying to f- figure it out. So very much this podcast is a opportunity for people to journey with, with me as well. But I do feel like the, I spend my time in impact investing because I think it's a modality or kind of mechanism to affect positive change within the current system, which is dominated by free market capitalism. But I increasingly just am maybe, what's the word I'm looking for? Doubting whether capitalism itself is salvageable. I'm interested in whether it can be tweaked. I think tweak is probably the wrong word, overhauled or whether it has to be done away with entirely and I, I don't know where i stand on that but it's just an interesting question so i love that you're picking at understanding these the a the issues with it and then b what are what, what alternatives exist maybe i'd love to maybe just focus on the embodied economics your first post your first official post after the kind of intro newsletter was uh, a really great discussion about what is economic value? And you point out how the term itself is pretty fuzzy. We think of it as having a very strict definition. But it you, you parallel it to the the fuzziness around the definition of life. Like I, it's funny, I never stopped to think about it. But you're as soon as I read it, it you know makes perfect sense. Scientists can't even agree on a very strict, all-encompassing definition of life that in a sentence you can tell people what is life and what is not. And so I'm maybe I'm going to quote you from this first post, and then I'll get you to just respond to it, unpack it further, and and some of the concepts from that newsletter. But you say. Similarly, when we begin to ask what is economic value, it is surprisingly difficult to come up with a coherent answer. Just as there is a wide range of opinion regarding how to define life, our conception of economic value is also beholden to a range of opinions, philosophical judgments, and irrational human behaviors which defy easy explanation. Economists have proposed different theories of value, some tied to production or exchange, but all of which rest on some invented philosophy about where profit and ultimately economic value come from. In other words, economic value is a notion we invented and we can evolve it better. Uh, We can evolve it to better serve our needs today. And then you talk about three categories which represent economic value in our current system. So, just to tease out the subjectiveness of that term, and so there's products, companies, and financial instruments. So, why is this such a pressing question? Why did you start your inquiry here? Maybe just unpack that a little bit
1: yeah no thank you and i just wanted to say welcome to the club of the question questioning
0: capitalist
1: <laughs> club um and i find that i'm becoming that person at parties who's just getting meirder and also like probably fundamentally unemployable by any reputable like investment company now <laughs> I, I feel i'm just too
0: far gone a hundred percent i worry the same <laughs> <laughs> If you've been following this podcast for a while, you'll know that one of the big problems I see in impact investing today is the massive talk-action gap. Many people are talking about impact investing, but far fewer people are actually putting their money where their mouth is. And there are a number of reasons why this problem exists, but one big reason is that it feels pretty scary if you've never made an impact investment before. That's why I'm excited to tell you about the Impact Investor Challenge at Spring Activator a program that empowers people like you to invest in what they value so we can drive more capital into supporting the success of purpose-driven entrepreneurs. And this in turn helps solve pressing global and local challenges and builds a community of like-minded change makers. So if you're looking to be a part of such a community, meet impact startups and be guided as you learn the proper due diligence process and actually deploy capital and make real impact investments, then this program's for you. Check out episode 37 of the podcast. That's where I interviewed Keith Ipple, CEO and founder of Spring Activator. We talk all about what the work that they do there. And then visit www.spring.is today to learn more and to register.
1: But yeah, I think what I was trying to articulate with this post in particular, and which I think is going to be another through line of my inquiry, is this idea of economic value is so subjective. And we intuitively know that when we see what a, a private equity executive gets paid versus a teacher or a nurse in terms of the value of our work and how undervalued so many jobs are in our economy. The very fact that we've never the the kind of unpaid or unaccounted for and therefore unvalued peer work, as I mentioned before, that economists have estimated it at I think it's like 11 trillion dollars annually and 4.5 um, trillion in the U.S. Yeah. you know alone and if you were to add that to GDP you would like quadruple or not quadruple it is like a fourth of the current GDP of the U.S. and the easiest thing you could do tomorrow if you wanted to boost GDP growth is just add care work right. <laughs> and and actually when I spoke to Indy Johar who's the co-founder of Dark Matter Labs, I did an interview with him and he was saying, wouldn't it be interesting as an experiment if you did that? And then you created some sort of public trust and you could actually, essentially, as a UBI type payment, you could pay everyone a dividend from the trust, not a dividend, but just a payment as a gift from us to us as this kind of different way of experimenting of what it means to value care. And so I guess the The thing that is so interesting, especially because of where markets are today and how speculative they are, there is just so much ridiculousness going on in markets that defies any rational explanation. And so that's what I tried to say about these explanations that economists have used to justify economic value like price. Well, actually, when you look at price, there's many different reasons why I think it's actually, in many instances, more it's it's a better proxy for the power of either the seller as in the case of monopolies where they can arbitrarily raise prices on consumers for, or they can also squeeze the price of labor as a as an optionist. or you look at things i use this silly example of a hundred and fifty thousand dollar purse by louis vuitton that's made of actual trash they're like a plastic bottle and a cigarette packet and they put it on to a purse and they sell it for up fifty thousand dollars and the that's called a Veblen good, and it's basically the the more expensive an item is, the more the more desirable it is solely because of the price, not because of any functional value. And this is the same with NFTs right now, where people are paying like one point three million dollars for for a JPEG of a rock, mm-hmm. <laughs> a cartoon rock, right? And it just defies like any rationality. and And so, I tried to tease that out. With products like that, with companies and how, oh, I mean, company valuations right now are just insane. 80% 80 of companies that went public in 2020 had negative earnings, so they're not even profitable. And then we also had situations where Tesla made more money selling Bitcoin than it did cars because of the financialization of companies where they actually are rewarded now for, they're not rewarded for things they used to be like selling products and services that matter to people. Or innovating, they're rewarded for essentially maximizing their asset values in real time, and they don't even have to involve growth. And the crazy example that I I got from an article in Julius, or by by a guy named Julius um, Kreeen or crying is that Apple's operating income, as an example, has remained largely unchanged for the last six years, and yet its stock has quadrupled in value, and partially, if not, for over- much of that that quote-unquote value that's been created is because they've done $337 billion stock buybacks. And this is nothing but financial engineering. And so you have to ask yourself, like, is that true economic value, right? When what you're doing is simply manipulating asset prices using offshore tax havens or using these other things that are available to corporations and then I go into derivatives as well as like financial instruments but the main point is just that this idea of economic value is so subjective and it's also very it's yeah it's like prone to manipulation in all kinds of ways and so I think that it's I think that's also one of the central kind of calls of our time is to be like what do we want to ascribe value to and how are we going to do that differently in a way that serves the needs of the planet and of humans and more than human life. And I'm not saying that we need to come up with a a strict definition, but I think that talking about economic value in the way that we do today really distracts from the, the deeper question of what do we value and what do we want to value and how do we use our economic and financial systems to bolster a world that supports this human and ecological flourishing and that isn't just arbitrary <laughs> buying nfts because it's fun i don't know it's just it's just that the current market seems so divergent from things that should really matter to us
0: yeah i'm, I'm processing all of this even as we're, we're we're chatting but it i've long felt or long is too strong a word but over the past you know six seven years increasingly felt like this version of capitalism. Once I had this, I view it as being unplugged from the the matrix. Um, once I started to question um, what I thought were fundamental truths and looking at capitalism through a critical lens, what it's morphed into now is a some hideous caricature of what capitalism. Maybe originally started as, and maybe that's too strong a description, but it does feel like it's morphed and become more extreme, that it's more detached from reality than it ever has been in the past. And I have to imagine I'm not a sort of student of the history of capitalism and what the kind of earliest thinkers' views on it were, but my guess is if I, you could maybe correct me if you've got a better understanding of it is that probably if we flash forward the earliest thinkers of capitalism, they saw what was going on today. I think they would view that as fairly shocking. (laughs) What we're seeing happening in the markets today and this idea of getting back to your earlier points, I think there's some ties here. Maybe not the only explanation for why it's happening, but when you, you know, we're very, people are humans. we're, We're as intelligent as we are. We're also still remarkably limited. And so when we look at problems and, Classic economics is you strip out all these externalities to focus on to make the problem more understandable and solvable, but you've removed now all the humanity from the equation because everything else that you can't easily quantify and put into your model is an externality and so we divorce economics from any real-world implications of what we're doing and then you Mm -hmm. marry with that this insatiable need for growth at all costs that capitalism requires. You have a pretty not a great recipe for human flourishing because it's just going to, you know, pr- pursue those all those tricks and to essentially manipulate price and economic value that doesn't actually map to any real world improvements for people's lives. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you, if you feel that way, but that's what I'm getting out of this and then it comes back to then you know, what what's the way out of this? It feels like a bit of a quagmire. I don't know how you start to unravel it. I thought a lot about putting do we need just to, if is the growth if we capped the this sort of insatiable desire for growth is that enough to salvage capitalism or, or are there still these sort of irreversible situation that we're in that's already too far gone I know no, that's a very vague description of it all but I'm having I'm, if I'm not articulate here it's because I'm still trying to wrestle with it in my own mind now
1: these are huge questions and. I certainly don't have answers either, but I think two people's, work, three people's work that I think recently has inspired me and shaped my thinking quite a bit is one is Rianne Eisler, who is a historian and is incredible. She's done a lot of work on domination versus partnership systems, and I think what's really helpful what is about what she said is that we get really hung up on these words like capitalism, socialism, and first of all, every every single company in the world is a mixed system. It isn't there in one or the other. It's just by degree. And it's also fascinating because as an example, the Heritage Foundation ranks Hong Kong in Singapore every year as the number one and two freest economies in the world. And yet 80% of Singaporeans live in state-owned housing and they have a big sovereign wealth fund that invests in a lot of state-owned enterprise and they conveniently leave out a lot of the Mm -hmm. other essentially socialistic dynamics that that economy employs. So I first of all, I think it's like a complete false binary, socialism yeah. versus capitalism. And then so then we get hung up on these terms and most people can't even really tell you what they mean by capitalism. And it's very fanatical often and like ideological versus based on reality. And then I think that, so I think that any economic system or political system for that matter can be used as a domination system and, it, and as a system of exploitation and extraction. And so regardless of what you want to call it, it's clear that we have an maladaptive system right now and one that is leading to a lot of destruction. It leads to some good. And for those of us for whom it's working very well and I can get (laughs) delicious coffees and then I talk to you on this computer and life has never been better for, for, for some of us. And so there are benefits, but clearly the benefits are not widely shared. And I think that's that's the deeper question. And so I was going to say as well that David Graber, who I just read his book, Debt, the first 5,000 years, just an incredible human being. i learning about his work this past year. He passed away, unfortunately, but was just so prolific. But what was fascinating is he also says that we have this idea that markets and the state are fundamentally in opposition to each other. But when you look Over the course of history, it was actually states and governments and empires that created markets, often to provision armies when they wanted to move them around easily to different countrysides and different domains. They had to have a way to pay to them. And so they would actually create currencies. And so what's interesting, too, is he talks about this idea that markets and the state and armies and violence and war are inextricably linked. And you can't like we have this idea that capitalism is somehow divorced from violence and I think the more that you talk to communities whether they've been colonized or like the when you look into the real history of these systems there is like a strong thread if not overarching theme of violence and domination that that is that categorizes this and so first we have to be honest about that and second we have to say okay so what does that mean for how we might do things differently build things differently and that's the really that's the much harder question and i think that there's a lot of people focused on reformation right now in terms of oh if we just get more esg disclosures like that'll fix it Mm -hmm. (laughs) or if we if we just determine that we're going to start accounting for natural capital on balance sheet, that somehow fixes it. And I do think that there are just going to have to be some really fundamental reorganizations in terms of how we think about, yeah, what is economic value? What are the goals of an economic system, aside from perpetual growth, as you mentioned? And how do you ensure that what you set up doesn't mechanized towards monopolization which is what our current systems are incentivized to do all Mm. the way from asset owners allocators all the way down and yeah
0: no sorry to cut you off
1: no i just that's one of the hardest things to think differently about is like even all of our pension funds are mechanized to to extract profit and profit there's nothing inherently wrong with profit but profit can be derived in numerous ways not all of which are good and in fact, a lot of times they're not very good ways, and if we don't, so all the people planet profit equals impact people <laughs> need to do a lot more digging, then uh, I'm going to write a post about this too, but profit is one of those things that also is defined differently throughout time, but we can't just take profit as like a given, profit comes from somewhere, mm-hmm. and It can come from squeezed labor. It can come from higher consumer prices from monopolization. It can come from extracting from natural resources. It can also come from innovating and providing better products and services, which is where we want it to come from. So if it comes from there, that's great. But if there is a lack of acknowledgement of where profits derive from, then the whole impact space is ignoring one of the central questions it has to reconcile with, I think.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to this, but I, I want to ask you, I, I've increasingly, to your point about, I can't remember the words you used, but the basic idea was that these constructs, capitalism, socialism, there's no pure systems anywhere, and it's a matter of degrees, and it's also a matter of how you apply it and what we value, and I, I feel like inc- maybe the more fundamental issue and, and problem, whatever this social or political contract construct we choose, is this sort of a divorce that we've had from nature and one another. Like this, I and I thinking more and more. of My thinking is being influenced by indigenous ways of knowing and being, and looking at the world around us and seeing and appreciating. I think the the value in that. I don't want to lump it all under one. It's not a monolith, but but there are certainly similarities around viewing ourselves as part of an inter an integral part of entire ecosystem and that we are in, inextricably linked. And when we divorce ourselves from that, almost no matter what political system or economic system we use, it allows us to very easily remove ourselves from the, impli- the um, implications of what we're doing. It allows us to be extractive. And so you're always just going to end up finding the, the loopholes or the ways back to me, me, me at the cost of others and you'll end up back in this exaggerated state. And so I wonder whether the more fundamental problem we need to address is how we view ourselves in relationship to the world as the starting point. Because if we adopt whatever system it is, it's going to break again until we've fundamentally addressed this. I don't know how you feel about that, but it's a theory oh, I've been yeah, working
1: no, on. <laughs> no, Totally. No, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think Again, it goes back to this homoeconomic is Mm -hmm. the central idea of modern economics, which is this disembodied, completely divorced from social, cultural, religious context person who exists like as a founded autonomous individual, which is the phrase that this great researcher in Canada named Dr. Sarah Sack uses more in a legal context. But it applies to economics, which is we have idealized the world as a set of mostly, and I don't like to on white men, but I'm just saying economics was created by white men who then envisioned that you could add up all these individuals in a very reductionistic way and each of their own sort of selfish impulses. And that's what creates an economic system in aggregate is the adding up all of these individual preferences. And What's so fascinating about that is it's like completely counter to so much of how throughout human history we've experienced ourselves as humans, which is fundamentally embedded within society, within families, within ancestries, within nature. This idea of embeddedness and context and rich relational context is something that we've completely ignored in, in many ways, I think, because it is very complex. And so there's been this need to as you mentioned, like to simplify the reductionism that's happened, reductionism can be useful sometimes, but when we base entire theories upon it and forget this kind of rich embeddedness and interconnectedness, that we again have this completely false picture of the world, which also I think is deeply isolating. And so I completely agree. I think that We'd, we've seen nature as something outside of ourselves to be extracted from to serve our purposes, instead of understanding that we ourselves are nature, that we come from the natural world, we're made of natural elements, and we will return to the to to dust. And and so I do. I think it's absolutely central and critical. And I wonder. I think that there's ways that potentially you could design systems for which it's much easier to come to that conclusion. Mm where it doesn't require everyone to go off to Burning Man or whatever people think is going to catch you there. (laughs) I'm not knocking it. I think we're psychedelic mushrooms are now all the rage. I I can appreciate all of those tools, but I think it's also perhaps we could design systems for which that recognition is more baked in from the beginning. So it doesn't feel like such a leap to have to contort yourself to understand that.
0: Yeah, it also doesn't have to be. Reserved for the wealthy who can afford to do those types of, <laughs> those things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, and it's you- really,
1: because especially for us, we are so disconnected. I think that's why we strive so much to use all of these different tools, whereas for others, for other communities or other nationalities or other cultures who have a much more, have a much stronger sense of this kind of relational and cultural identity they don't have to go to all these great lengths and go on retreats to Costa Rica to figure
0: it out. You know what I mean? (laughs) I do. Yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm
1: being, I'm being a little petty now, but
0: yeah. No, but it, I I think it, I think, listen, I think even the folks who are in that space, those spaces and do those types of things, I like you, it's okay to have a healthy laugh at the, there are aspects of it that are in some ways a little absurd, but also, you know, I, I can see the impact that those uh, types of experiences have on people and they're very profound I think in a lot of cases but also I think you should totally, be able to laugh totally. at yourself and if you can't then that's your issue. So <laughs> I'm really sad I've, I wish I had a lot more of your time because like all of these topics I there's a lot more things I want to ask you about but I want to be respectful of your time. Can you maybe just chat a little bit about like from a cuz we've opened up and I, I haven't really gotten to interrogate them in any detail but opened up a lot of big existential questions about our systems right now how do you think about that versus okay what do I actually what's actually effective for me in terms of how can I move the needle and you personally and the but just more broadly writ large how people can move the needle because we can poke holes in all sorts of things there's a very you know prominent tariq fancy did a expose on all the problems in ESG investing and and I, I think a lot of what he says are very fair criticisms to put out there. But on the other hand, we can, it's easy to be the critic and the cynic and sit on the sidelines poking holes in everything. Mm-hmm. That's not going to move the, the needle on its own. So what are ways in which a you think about it in your context or be how others can think about actually doing things that make a difference? How do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a question I really ask myself every day. And, Sometimes struggle to know and understand because on the one hand it's obviously one I feel in my life and I felt this from a very young age. Just I didn't have the language of privilege, but I knew that my life for so many reasons I had been given so much, and I feel I like I felt and I still feel a huge responsibility about that and the fact that I even have time to sit around reading all these things and that's just a, that's a privilege, it's a gift, and I feel responsible to try to use that in a way that hopefully is useful to the world but also while recognizing like on one tiny little speck of sand that hopefully will flow in the right direction and create a little sand pile and a couple other people will join and ideally eventually create a dune that I don't know that shapes something and I don't know I just I don't want to have overly grandiose ideas about what I can do as an individual, but I also don't want to not step into all that I can do with the resources and the privilege that I've had. To be honest, I think I just try to stay, I have a mix of things that I do, whereas I talked about at the beginning where I'm working with AELP, the American Economic Liberties Project, on more tangible political action and regulatory reform, because that feels, even though it still takes a long time, but it feels slightly more (laughs) Sh- shorter term perhaps than you know re- reworking capitalism but i also think that they're i'm increasingly intrigued once you start to get into other communities you just realize how much is out there that's fascinating that people are trying to do and i feel deeply inspired by this collection and a whole host of activities whether it's i love the work that you know purpose does on transitioning companies to different ownership structures i love chatting with people that they're like way beyond my understanding that are doing like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations and thinking of new ways of using different types of currencies to reorient value exchange. And I'm not a Bitcoin person. We can save that for next, <laughs> yeah. next time. I think a lot of the crypto stuff is getting co-opted by all the same dynamics we've been talking about here of yeah. control and centralization of value. But I do think that there are, are a lot of experiments happening now where people like, there's a huge community of people that have been thinking about this for much, much longer than I have. Yeah. And it's exciting to just try to jump in and see what they're doing and be helpful if and where I can be and learn from them. And I don't know, that's a like kind of a vague answer, but I just, I don't know. It's a mixture of trying to use what to decide what feels useful, but then also being a bit emergent in your approach to being open to where those synchronicities or those things appear, that which feel like been placed in your path to step forward it to.
0: Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. I, I think about it along the lines of, you know, exactly. There's taking those opportunities for moving the needle where you think you can, and you can add something of value, but then also not like pot committing to this is it and this is the thing. And this is all I'll ever spend my time on because this is the answer and leaving yourself, Open openness to your views changing and evolving and new opportunities presenting and emerging. And that's, I think that's where there is some value and sort of just, you know not digging in your feet and continuing to move and evolve and having feet and your hands in different pots allows you to see, I think, opportunities and and not get entrenched into one kind of worldview. So I don't know if that's partly at play there, but it is for me. And as you were saying that, it was resonating with me.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think just for me, my I see my role more as a bridger between different spaces where, because unfortunately it's just who I am and I'm like too intellectually ADD to commit to something, <laughs> yeah. which is like a strength and a weakness, very dire sure. weakness. But yeah, but I think that there are people who have been committed to a certain stream of work for 10 years and in some ways they really envy that or longer and deeply respect people who also... I've sure fully recognize the limitation because no solution is perfect and nothing is all encompassing for all of these huge challenges, but still are committed to their piece of the elephant or whatever. And I really respect that. It's just, yeah, I don't, I wish that were me, <laughs> but I don't know if it's ever going to be me. So I just have to embrace who I am and try to use it. That's, that's like, yeah.
0: Yeah, 100%. I appreciate that. Listen, Denise, thank you for taking the time today. I feel like I could have talked to you for another uh, few hours. And if you're up for it sometime, I'd love to have you back on. There's a lot we could talk about NFTs and the whole Web3 yeah. thing. And impact measurement was an area that I'd love to uh, chat to you more about and whether that's our efforts there are worthwhile. Or are we doing more damage than good? Anyway, so there's a whole long list of other things. And maybe someday we'll, we'll get you to I'll convince you to carve out some time to come back. Yeah,
1: no, this was so much fun. Thank you, David. And such a pleasure. And yeah, if anyone's listening and wants to connect uh, with me directly just for a chat or whatever, happy to connect with them. I have a website called um, denisehearn.com where you can reach me there. I'm on Twitter as well and all places. But yeah, I, I love hearing from people. So if anything's resonated or if you feel I can be helpful to what they're working on, I'd love to connect with them.
0: And the musicians, you're looking for what again?
1: (laughs) No, yeah. So thanks. (laughs) Um, I don't know. A guitarist, a good guitarist. I play guitar, but I'm not very good. And a a percussionist.
0: Okay. (laughs) I'm going to put links to all this stuff in the show notes. So if folks want to find it, but denisehearn.com. And uh, thanks again, Denise. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you. This has been a blast. Talk to you soon, David.
0: Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the Impact Investing Podcast. If you like what you heard, I'd be incredibly grateful if you left a review on iTunes. And uh, heads up, we're now available on most audio platforms, which includes iTunes, but also Spotify, Google, Overcast, you name it. And also, I can now use Siri to listen to the podcast by saying, Hey, Siri, play the Impact Investing Podcast.
1: Here's the, the Impact Investing
0: Podcast. Yeah, just like that. You're listening to the Impact Investing Podcast.